Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the MLB Pipeline Podcast. I'm Jason Ratliff here with Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo. And uh, the biggest news of last week in the world of baseball, I think, is there is there bigger news than than being elected to the Hall of Fame? Probably not. That's that's kind of what it's all about in baseball, right? Uh, world championships, World Series titles as well. But uh, it doesn't get much bigger than that. We had three players uh, elected last week, and we're going to spend some time talking about them as prospects. Uh, those players, of course, Joe Maurer, Adrian Beltre, Todd Helton. And Joe Maurer, of particular interest here, because he was the first ever number one overall prospect on uh, a list that uh, a rankings prospect rankings list that went out on MLB.com. That was back in 2004, uh, which Jonathan put that thing together all by himself. And so we wanted to have the longtime twins GM Terry Ryan on today to uh, talk to us a little bit about Joe Maurer. So he's going to join us a little later. Um, and there were some trades over the past week as well that involved some top 100 prospects. So we'll break those down. And we will wrap up by answering a question from the mailbag. Jim, Jonathan, let's talk. Let's talk Joe Maurer, and let's talk about the fact that Jonathan, you've been a part of prospect rankings list on MLB.com for 20 years now. Jim's Jim's been doing it longer than that, just not all here. 1980, 1988, I did a Pioneer League prospect in Arizona complex league followers. those were your first two uh, lists uh, prospect list. yes so 1988 and that was back when the arizona league had i don't know like four teams <laughs> like it was very small i think it was an arizona league top five and a pioneer league top 10 and i did not remember who was on the top Terrible. Of either oh, of i was gonna, I I was gonna ask in order right now exactly well, i i can you know we, anyone that was as on? we podcast i will I, I will, I will, I will walk over and, and grab a Baseball America almanac here <laughs> in a second and and do some research. All right. Well, we want to take a look back um, and look at some of the biggest hits and biggest misses from those lists. Why don't we start with the hits? We'll start with the hits. Sure. Uh, as I mentioned, Joe Maurer, the first and biggest hit so far because he is the only player uh, that. We've ranked in 20 years at MLB.com that has, has now gone on to be elected to the Hall of Fame. He was number one uh, back in 2004. And Jonathan, the way that we've tackled this one is we put together a, an all-time prospect team anchored by Hall of Famer Joe Maurer. Yeah, I'm going to be hanging on to that pretty much for the entirety of my career. Uh, the fact that, you know, he was the obvious number one prospect, I think. It wasn't like uh, uh, there was a quick, a big leap to make. Uh, as we discussed with our uh, prospect post game, the stuff that we did following the Top 100 show, Jim, you know, Baseball America helped him, and Joe Maurer was ranked number one there in 2004. So I wasn't breaking new ground, but um, it was pretty cool for him to, to have led the way. And, you know, so we put together a, like an all-time prospect team with a starter, a backup, you know, based on on war. And then a, sort of a guy to keep an eye on was sort of a fun thing to do and allowed for a little more subjectivity because obviously with the prospect rankings, we have really good prospects who have just made it to the big leagues, haven't even made it to the big leagues yet. So trying to consider all of those. But 
you know, there's some some pretty good names on here, and I do wonder how many of these guys will end up joining Joe Maurer in Cooperstown when all is said and done. Uh, you know, too early for some of them. I think some are pretty clear, like the Mike Trouts of the world, who has accrued more war than any prospect we've we've ever ranked, and he was number one back in, in 2011. But it, it was a lot of fun kind of going through and mining the the data out for 20 years. And then, you know, at a certain point in time, we started updating the midseason. So it was, you know, multiple lists a year uh, to, to pick out some of the, the greatest examples of, of successes from our, from our rankings. I mean, starting at that catcher spot, there are some, some doozies. You're, you're, when your backup is Buster Posey. Right. And uh, your, your keep an eye on is Adley Rutschman. Uh, so that's, that's nice right off the bat. And then I'm kind of curious, you, you said, you know, you're curious to see how many of these guys go on to join, uh, Maurer and Cooperstown. I mean, going down the list, first base, Joey Votto, backup, Freddie Freeman. First of all, we'll be interested to see whether Freeman overtakes Votto in terms of cumulative career war. It's close. Yeah. Yeah. Second base, you have Mookie Betts, who, uh, at the time was, a second baseman and is he a second baseman again is that what's going on he's a second yes. baseman yeah. again yeah yep. it's come full yep. circle and and he i don't know if this is the widest margin between a, a the starter and the backup but 64.5 career b war compared to his backup howie kendrick 35 uh, almost double that is that is the largest okay margin. uh third base evan longoria followed by nolan arenado who you would think would probably overtake yes. Longoria uh, relatively soon. He's just four war behind. Shortstop, uh, Manny Machado, Troy Tulowitzki. Keep an eye on Corey Seager. That one's interesting because shortstop is, you know, maybe the the sexiest position of all of them. I mean, we've had so many great shortstop prospects. Uh, it's, you know, that position is, when you look at the top 100 prospects list, it's about as well represented as as any uh, behind you know pitchers, but the career war here for these guys is it doesn't quite measure up to some of the other positions, which is kind of interesting. Well, you know, I think because you get banged up there, Jason. Because like looking at Tolitsky as the backup, like I think at least I felt like Tolitsky was on a Hall of Fame path, yeah, and then he just got to the point where he couldn't stay healthy. He got hurt. It seemed like. Every year there was something, and it you know his career just kind of ended a little bit. Well, Machado might have you know a good number of years to to to, to add to that total. Uh, he's by no means you know at the end of his career, so uh, there may be a that that total may not feel as deficient uh, once once he's done. You know, even if he spent the bulk of his big league career at third base. Yeah, looking looking back uh, at some of the recent. Highly ranked shortstops, Fernando Tetis Jr. Uh, Bo Bichette was a, uh, on the shortstop list back in 2018. Uh, Royce Lewis, Bobby Witt Jr. Uh, just signed a huge contract uh, just yesterday as we record this. Uh, so some some big names still coming. Jackson Holiday, number one on the list now. Anything else? Uh, with this list in particular that stood out to you, Jonathan? I mean, I know the outfield is stacked and you've got quite a, uh, quite a starting rotation here in Verlander, Kershaw, Frankie, 
Scherzer and Cole Hamels. That's a, that's a nice one through five there. I mean, I think that the, those first four, I think there's a good chance, right? I, I, like I'm, I don't have a good feel for, you know, Verlander's obviously a Hall of Famer. Uh, but, I mean, uh, would anybody be surprised if Verlander, Kershaw, Greinke, and Scherzer all ended up in Cooperstown when all is said and done? Yeah, uh, they all should. Uh, you know, I agree with that. So, you know, that those, those guys really, you know, sort of above and beyond, not only in terms of just how how good they were, you know, the best at their craft, but the longevity of most of them, you know, of most of them. I mean, Cole Hamels, who's, you know, the one of that five who's no longer pitching, 15 years in the big leagues, you know, um, really, really good left-hander. So you talk about pitchers breaking down all the time. These guys have done it at a very high level for a really long time. And the gap between Trout and the rest of the outfielders also substantial and I think just you know speaks to the absolute superstar that that Trout has been um, number one on our 2011 preseason list has accrued 85.2 war as Jonathan you mentioned is more than anyone else that we've ever ranked Andrew McCutcheon behind him at 48.6 Curtis Granderson 47.2 got a lot of guys that are still accruing uh war by the by the boatload um that will end up surpassing a couple of the names on that list i think and and harper stanton and judge uh, then you're keep an eye on juan soto yeah i have a feeling that the the, the starting lineup uh, is gonna gonna change behind trout uh, at some point uh in the not too distant future uh you know i think some of those younger guys as you know as mccutcheon is coming in towards the close of what's been a really, really very good career. And then some of those backups, you know, a couple of those guys have the chance to end up uh, being Cooperstown worthy as well. All right, Jonathan, we started off with some of the biggest hits and we started off with the biggest in terms of a guy that's going into the hall of fame and Joe Maurer, number one on your first list ever back in 2004. And your your biggest hit was followed almost immediately by the biggest miss ever. The the <laughs> highest ranked player, uh, the highest ranked player that never made it to the big leagues, Greg Miller, uh, of the Dodgers was number three on that same 2004 list between Maurer and Miller, B.J. Upton. Uh, Miller was followed by the aforementioned Zach Granke, Edwin Jackson, Cole Hamels, Ricky Weeks, Scott Casimir, Grady Sizemore. That's that's a nice uh, nice top nine there. Those guys all uh, panned out quite well. Yeah, looking at looking at the biggest whiffs, and <laughs> it's pretty easy to see a theme with the the five highest ranked guys that never made it to the big leagues. Uh, Greg Miller was number three in two thousand four. Adam Miller, coincidentally, same last name, the second highest ranked player ever to not make it to the big leagues. With Cleveland back in uh, the in 2008 was number 10 on the list. Tyler Kolick was number 27 in 2015. Marlins first round pick Bobby Brownlee was number 38 on that 2004 list. Uh, Cubs right-handed pitching prospect and Chuck Lofgren was number 39 in 2007. So the five biggest misses ever in terms of guys that just didn't ever make it to the big leagues, all pitchers. 
Yeah, and I think you know there there are people who say there's no such thing as a pitching prospect just because. So- Which is stupid. <laughs> Don't even say that. that. That's the dumbest thing they ever said. Like that was just BP garbage. Like yeah, wow. okay, so there's no such thing as a pitching prospect. Like I'm well, you you opened a vein. I didn't realize. <laughs> That's just garbage. I know you're not saying not. that. But that's just a stupid there thing. There are say. those who stupid say that, say. and I was using that. If you will, let me idiots. finish my sentence. Anyway, I was outraged. I could tell. Yeah. Are you okay? Do you need a minute? I, I, I'm, I'm good. Uh, right. I'm good now. People say that actually because of all. I the think Jonathan has uh, has that on his license plate. T N S T A A P. Yeah, I'd probably like try to force <laughs> okay, him off the road I if that? I saw that. Tinstat. Tinstat. Um, the point being, so much can go wrong with pitching prospects, and this list kind of is a case in point. Uh, you know, a lot of injuries, a lot of inability to throw strikes, which sometimes came as a result of not bouncing back from said injuries, and that's what happened with Greg Miller. Uh, you know, everyone thought that he was destined to become you know the next great pitching prospect and i think a lot of ways he was clayton kershaw before clayton kershaw uh just in terms of you know young left-hander he was in double a at age 18 had a ridiculous year and then you know then the wheels came off because of injuries and he never you know never could get back um and uh you know that that that's happened often you know, and some of those other guys, Chuck Lofgren was really interesting. Futures gamer. We hung out with him in San Francisco. Uh, we brought him in early. It was one of those early. That was only, I think, the second year that we were doing that with futures game players. But he was from the area. He was a really good two-way guy who, at the very outset, like there was a chance they were going to let him do both. And then he got into a collision at home plate when he was hitting. And that was the end of his hitting career until the very end when he was an indie ball and he tried to hit again to kind of try to make his way back. But that didn't uh, that didn't go very well. I had a question for you. And I because I, I when I read your story, Jonathan, um, and it's fascinating because, you know, as you said, I mean, if anybody was perfect at this stuff, you'd be the highest paid executive in baseball. And, you know, Greg Miller was very high on our Baseball America list at the time. I, I looked up the answer to this, but I don't know if you know the Probably answer not. to this. Do you know who the highest ranked? hitter or hitter the top two hitters on a position on the top 100 who never made it I do not. the big leagues because you did like that was that was my same reaction i was like i was curious when i saw your story the first was kind of a sad story it's ryan westmoreland with the red sox we had ranked as high as number 27 or, or i guess it wasn't we because i wasn't at mlb in 2010 but like we had him similarly ranked to baseball america who wound up having um issues with brain tumors and it kind of ended his career, but the, the, the non health related highest ranked player appears to be Hawk Ju Lee, hmm. uh, the shortstop who ranked 36th in mid, mid 2022. So, uh, I don't know when the last time, if we've ever mentioned <laughs> Ju Lee on the podcast before. Um, I think that's this is the second time I've had a conversation about Hawk Ju Lee in the last four days. Cause I was talking to our ra- really, were you, were you talking about people who killed Austin? <laughs> I was, I was didn't, talking didn't... to our fine Rays beat writer, Adam Berry about the history of Rays prospects. And, uh, he was shocked to see Hawk Ju Lee's name mentioned frequently. And now, and now I feel like I've maligned Hawk Ju Lee unfairly and I'm going to get sued. The Cubs had a prospect who not like knocked a Osprey off a perch in the Florida state league. 
but it was it was Jake Huckaroo. It was not Hak Lee. So I, I apologize to Hak Lee for my 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 ill timed <laughs> Osprey mention. Uh, Who knew we were going to talk about Ospreys and Hak Lee during this segment? Who knew? Yeah, he was he was uh, charged Thursday by the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. Uh, it was a thing. Wow. It was it was a thing. All right, so that that leads uh, pretty nicely. Jim, thank you for that segue to the next group of players, which Jonathan, we categorized as foul tips. So we had the full on whiffs, swing and a miss with those five pitchers. And then foul tips is, is uh, Jim mentioned the two highest ranked hitting prospects that never made it to the big leagues. The rest of these players did make it to the big leagues. Um, but tell us how this is categorized. What Jonathan, it's anybody who was at one time a top 10 overall prospect and accrued less than five, five. war yeah. over the course of career. Now, this one yeah, want, is hitter-heavy. It is hitter-heavy. And, and I want people to recognize, and I think maybe I'm just thinking of a couple of people who like commented when this story got tweeted out, that this is not like disparaging players or their efforts or anything like that. It's, it's more just that it's, it's really hard to... Uh, it's hard to do this even when you're you know you have good industry contacts and you're you're getting the sense trying to get the best sense of what the industry thinks of prospects at the time and making it to the big leagues is really hard so that said you know it's like delman young it would sort of be a foul he's a foul tip because he was our number one prospect for three years um and but he ended up with a career war of 3.2 you know, he finished second in AL Rookie of the Year voting. Uh, he won an ALCS MVP with the Tigers later on. And he played in over 1,100 big league games. So, like, that's not a whiff, you know. But it's not quite when the guy is the number one overall pick and the number one prospect for, for that long, that's not quite measuring up to what the expectation level is. And I think that's true of the other, you know, the other guys that, you know, that we had. Uh, on this, Jeremy Hermita, Ian Stewart were, were both number two prospects. And then Brandon Wood, who is often the example that I use when when I get asked, like, who's a guy that you thought was going to make it? And I think that if he played in today's game with launch angle and things like that, he may have carved out a Joey Gallowish kind of career, but that, you know, neither here nor there. But he was number three in 2006 after hitting 43 homers in the minors in 05 and then hitting 14 in the fall league, uh, which is still the, the AFL record for, for home runs in, in a season and just never got past swing and miss issues. So he, he's kind of the one that I always look at as uh, the, the one that I, I thought because of that power and the ability to play shortstop, you know, that he, he would have carved out uh, a better career and he ended up with negative war uh, by the time he was done. Jim, is there anyone on this list uh, that you were particularly bullish on that that you were you would have bet a large sum of money that was going to be an MLB star? Um, I don't know if I would have bet a large sum <laughs> of money because I don't bet large sums of money. But uh, no, I mean all these guys. I mean, I didn't pull up the BA list. Most of these guys predate my time because I I straightened Jonathan out when I came. Yeah, over. we've been a hundred percent since. <laughs> yeah, we haven't missed anybody. There's nobody on the last 10 lists on here. Tyler Kolek, uh, my friend. No, I mean we Yeah, we had the well there you go. We had these guys, we had these guys ranked very similarly to Baseball America. So it wasn't like like these were outlier. I mean, 
a couple of these guys, like I, I thought Pedro Alvarez had potential to be the best player in the 2009 draft. And I remember like his, like, it's always a bad sign. Like his first spring training, his first pro season scouts would see him be like, man, he's just not in very good shape. Like he signed for big money. And then the body, which was not great to begin with went South. Jesus Montero was, was a classic one where I, I want to say, I think we had him as high as number three, maybe at baseball America, Jonathan, you had him at, at number nine. And I don't think anybody ever really thought he was going to be a catcher, but that guy hit everywhere in the minors. He was young. It looked like he was going to hit for average, hit for power. And I don't think he worked very hard either. And it went south quickly. And, you know, the famous ice cream sandwich incident in AAA. I, I do think from my my many years of broadcasting AAA All-Star games, I do think Jesus at one point shared the record with four AAA All-Star game appearances. I don't know if he went back after that. So that was kind of highlight of his career. But But those were probably the two looking at this list that I thought were going to be, you know, and obviously I mean, Delman Young was the number one overall pick and got to the big leagues in a hurry. And like Jonathan said, I mean, he had a long career. He just, you know, it was kind of up and down and didn't, didn't really, you know, wasn't the difference maker he was projected to be. All right. Well, that complete list, uh, both, both complete lists, the all-time prospect team and uh, 15 guys we missed on our biggest whiffs, both up on MLB.com slash pipeline right now. Go check out those complete lists. Uh, but we, we want to get back to the hits and, uh, one second, Jason, one second. Oh, what do you have? We, oh yeah, that's you right. You, 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 you fetched oh, yeah, your, the listeners have been waiting. Right. Yeah. The listeners are like, oh my God, who was Jim Callis's number one Arizona league prospect in 1988, which was also the debut of the Arizona league. I, this is not one of my best <laughs> rankings. This would go down as a whiff. Jonathan, I, you, you, I'm, I don't know why you didn't cite this in your, in your list. It was Ed Ricks. Yes, Ed you Ricks. remember Ed Ricks, athletics. Ed Ricks, who was out of baseball at the end of the 1989 season. I, I did better in the Pioneer League, though. Jose Offerman there you go. was my number okay. one prospect. And I'll tell you a quick little funny story. So back in the day, this is pre-cell phone, pre-internet. Like the way you, we would talk to players at Baseball America. Tim cans in the string. Is pretty much. But like the, the Baseball America directory listed road hotels for teams. So you would try to track down guys when they were on the road and i remember trying to get in touch with jose offerman who not for that story but i did feature on him during the season and as it turned out he didn't speak great english so it was kind of for not um but the hotel kept connecting me to 1987 dodgers first round pick dan opperman <laughs> and actually you know what i'm telling the story wrong i was trying to, to get dan offerman. offerman no i was trying i was trying to get a hold of dan opperman and they kept connecting him to Jose Offerman's room and he couldn't speak English. And it was like a comedy of errors because um, I did not speak Spanish much to my, to my, my, my regret. But, uh, but yeah, so Jose Offerman was, was a hit. Ed Ricks, not so much. And, and I guarantee this is the first time we've mentioned former athletics outfielder Ed Ricks. <laughs> I don't even know how you, how do you spell podcast. Ricks? I don't, I don't even know what this last name is. It's R-I-C-K-S. Uh, no. He posted a 941 ops more walks and strikeouts there you go. in the AZL. He was old, but like the league was kind of a hodgepodge. So um, this is the yeah. time where I point out that I was a junior in high school in 1988. <laughs> you were probably reading Baseball America, going, "Man, writing about Ed Ricks—that seems like a pretty cool job." That's I want to do that. Exactly. Thanks, Jim. 
All right. Well, let's get back to the to the hits and the biggest hit, uh, the number one overall prospect from 2004, Joe Maurer. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk to longtime Twins GM Terry Ryan about Joe and more. That's coming up next on the MLB Pipeline Podcast. Welcome back to the MLB Pipeline Podcast. I'm Jason Ratliff here with Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo, and we are very pleased to be joined by Terry Ryan, longtime Minnesota Twins GM. And uh, Terry, obviously uh, having you on today to uh, talk to you in particular about one Joe Maurer, uh, recently elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Thanks very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Appreciate you guys having me on. So, uh, Terry, before we before we get started talking about Joe, uh, wanted to talk a little bit about your career. Once again, I find myself in a in a room full of only left-handers, Jim, Jonathan, and Terry. I, if I'm not mistaken, you were uh, you were a, a, a quite the left-handed pitcher. I was left-handed, but not quite. <laughs> uh, I was I was a lefty, and you know I signed out of high school and with the Twins way back then, and I had a lot of arm problems, but I also had other issues that kept me out of pro baseball for very long. Well, I you had you had quite the pro debut. Uh, your your numbers were pretty incredible: ten and zero, one point seven eight ERA. And in addition to the 10 wins, 13 saves in 43 games pitch. And you, you, like you said, you'd been drafted by the Twins. This was for the Wisconsin Rapids, who were only, what, a couple hours away from, from where you had grown up and gone to high school. And you come out and have this great debut. You must have been, you must have been living large right, right about then, feeling pretty good. Yeah, I would say I was feeling pretty good. Of course, when you're a closer and you get 10 wins, that means you gave up <laughs> other runs to get to a tie game. So that's a little deceiving, but nonetheless, yeah, it was a good year. And we and we won the Midwest League Championship that year. There you go. So how did you go? So you pitched a couple more years, uh, a few more years, made it up to double A. You mentioned you're, you had arm troubles. How did you go from that point to – uh, becoming a scout with the Mets. After I got released, I went back to school and graduated from the University of Wisconsin, as I promised my parents, so they'd let me sign out of high school. So when I graduated, I dabbled in a few things, but ultimately I wanted to get back into the game, and it wasn't going to be as a player. And I started to contact a few people in pro baseball and got some guidance from a few people in my hometown, Janesville, Wisconsin. And Dale McReynolds of the Dodgers, a longtime scout, he took me under his wing and he gave me some advice and he kind of taught me how to scout. He thought I might be able to go that direction. And ultimately I got an interview with the Mets and I got a job. Pete Gabrion was the scouting director at that time. And he gave me a job as a Midwest scouting supervisor. I was going to throw in here. I I first met Terry. This is going to date myself again. This is crazy, Terry. 37 years ago, when you were at the University of Georgia to scout Chris Carpenter and uh, Derek Lowquist and, and maybe Steve Carter, who also played in the big leagues. And I've known you for a long time. And, and, and Terry, as you guys know, maybe our listeners don't, had a tremendous career as a scouting director and then later a GM. My first year at Baseball America, 
we used to do when I was a baseball America, I don't know if they still do them draft report cards. And we put letter grades on them, even though it was an impossible task to know how good a draft was that quickly. And Terry in 1989, the first year I was doing this, oversaw one of the best drafts any team has ever had. Chuck Knobloch, Marty Cordova were future rookies of the year. Danny Nagel, Scott Erickson, obviously long careers. Mike Trombley, I think there were like 10 big leaguers. Denny Hawking in the 52nd round. And uh, Terry, you, you gave me a hard time about this and deservedly so. Do you remember the grade I gave that draft, which was one of the best ever? I would say maybe a B minus or a C plus. I think I gave you a C plus and, 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 and rightfully so <laughs> Terry for you, you. I deserved this for several years after that, whenever I run into you, you'd go, man, I thought that was a pretty good draft. And I only got a C plus. So, you know, um, that goes back probably to the Knobloch selection as number one pick for us, Jim, because I, I don't think many people thought Chuck was going to be that type of player, but we had a lot of depth on him from the Cape Cod league and, we really liked him. Obviously, we took him, and he ended up being Rookie of the Year and had a good career. I'm going to remind Jim of this now forever. So, thank you for sharing that story, both of you, um, <clears throat> Terry. I want to, you know, we want to obviously talk about Joe Maurer, but first of all, I want to congratulate you because you were recently uh, elected to the Twins Hall of Fame. So, sort of a two for one Hall of Fame deal. So, congratulations on, on that honor, uh, especially in an organization that prided itself on, on continuity and, and keeping great people there for, for a long time. But let's, let's dig into Joe Maurer a little bit. I, I think by now, most people know that it came down to Joe Maurer, the, the local, the local high school two sports star and Mark Pryor, uh, you know, the, the right-hander at USC take us through the tension in the draft room uh, in terms of having to make that decision, uh, working with uh, the late, great Mike Radcliffe and, and sort of trying to decide what the right call to make for the Twins organization at the time. Well, we went into the spring thinking about Teixeira and Pryor and Maurer. And those are the three guys that Mike sent me out to see real early. Teixeira went to Texas early with Georgia Tech. And Mike had me go down there and see him and Ultimately, that was a good decision because he ended up breaking his ankle that, that spring. So then ultimately, it got down to, to uh, Bauer and Pryor. And we had good discussions about both those guys coming into the draft. We had a bunch of people see Maurer. We had a bunch of people see Pryor. We had some people leaning toward Pryor and some people leaning toward Maurer. And, you know, at that time, we weren't doing too good as a franchise, and it was right, right around the con, uh, contraction business, and we were having trouble drawing. We needed pitching, and Mike and I and a couple of the supervisors got together, and ultimately, it was going to be Mike's decision with input, and about the night before the draft, we decided taking Joe, and ultimately, he's going into the Hall of Fame, so I guess we had a good decision. Hey, Terry, uh, do you recall the first time you, you ever saw Maurer? I know I, I read that um, the area scout there, Mark Smith, saw him his freshman year and said that he knew there was something special there then, didn't know, you know, it was going to be number one overall pick type talent, but knew that there was something there as early as ninth grade. And obviously, Joe was an incredible athlete on the baseball diamond, football field, basketball court, 
where, when and where did you see him first? Yeah, I think I saw him as a junior in, in high school and being that close, you're going to bump into teams and players. And I think I bumped into him going out to see somebody else, but you know, Mark Wilson's the scout that you're probably. Oh, sorry. To yes. Mark. But Mike Radcliffe, right. But Mike Radcliffe had seen him play in the 18 and under all-star team that traveled internationally and, he came back when he saw him, I think he was 16. And he told me there's a kid right down the road that you're going to end up seeing. And unfortunately we finished last the previous year he was eligible. So it, uh, the stars aligned. And I think I saw him maybe 10 or 11, 12 times his spring eligibility year, which is unheard of to see a guy that often. So I had a lot of depth. Mike just kept telling me, go back, keep going back. And, then I told him it's time for you to see him now, see exactly what you're going to compare him to with the Priors and the Teixeiras and some of the other big drafts that uh, probably were going to be selected in the top 10. And he came in in late April and I told him he's ready to be seen because he had his basketball muscles. He wasn't quite ready to be seen in early April. And I didn't want him to wait much longer with the weather up there in St. Paul. You never know what's going to happen in late April, but he came in and, you know, we started flooding guys in the whole month of May, and there was continued to be every club that was picking in the top 10 had scouts there every time he played. So we kind of, we were one of 10 teams there almost every game. And ultimately, then we got to the room and we decided on, on making Joe the, our selection. I mean, looking back, it, it's kind of funny because you had three outliers you could have picked. I mean, there were other players too, but Mark Pryor at the point was probably the best pitching prospect in draft history, right up there with anybody. Teixeira was probably about as heralded a, a college hitter as there was in draft history at that point. And then you had Maurer, who was an amazing athlete, you know, like Jason just alluded to, you know, national player of the year in football, Florida State recruit, averaged 20 points a game for a team, I think, that finished third in state in basketball. And I remember talking to, to, to Mike Terry about him you know, because prior and to share were so famous and, and we were doing, I think kind of like a spring. Okay. Where's the draft, you know, sit two months in advance. And I remember Mike saying, Joe Maurer's pretty good. Like Joe wasn't as famous as those guys initially. And even on draft day, I think there was some maybe heat that like, Oh, they took the cheaper guy. They took the hometown guy instead of prior to share. But in terms of tools, Terry, how, like, one, have you ever seen a more athletic catcher than Joe Maurer? And two, how many swings did you have you seen? How many left handed swings have you seen that were as pretty as Joe Maurer's? Because those both still stand out for me. I, I guess it's, you know, 23 years later. Well, Jim, if you break down his skills and you're looking at catchers and particularly left handed hitting catchers, those guys are hard to find. And we were playing in the Metrodome at that time with that inviting right field wall. Ironically, Joe was an off-field hitter. So we had Przinsky at that time, too, who was a darn good catcher and young. But Joe could throw, and he was extremely accurate. He had a quick release. He had good feet. He had tremendous hands. He had athletic ability shifting and blocking. He could frame. He could run, unlike most catchers. 
But the thing that stood out is the swing, and everybody could recognize that. I think I could have sent my wife over there and say, yeah, he's got a beautiful swing. So Mike identified that a long time prior to his eligibility year, but every time you go see the guy, he's putting the barrel on the ball. His hand-eye coordination and bat to the barrel to the ball were phenomenal. And then you put the makeup into the equation, all of a sudden you've got a pretty good uh, set of skill set plus makeup. And, you know, we, we were accused of taking a cheaper player every time we selected with the Twins way back then because we didn't really have a, a high uh, amount of money to work with. Our payroll was low and all that stuff. But when you put all those things together, Pryor was the best pitcher I'd seen in quite a long time. Teixeira, I didn't get a great look at because it was only a one-game series, but there's no doubt that Teixeira was a legitimate number one in the country if he hadn't break, broke his ankle. But we liked Maurer. We stuck with Maurer, and the makeup was pristine. He's a local kid, and everything just came to fruition here that I don't, no matter which of the three you took, you couldn't go wrong, but we ended up taking Joe. You know, it's interesting following up on what Jim said, Terry. Back then, you know, you had the 18U team. There were some showcases, but not to the extent that you have them now. I'm wondering if people would have had the same opinion that you guys you were taking the, you know, haircut, hometown kid, saving money, if Joe Maurer had been out on the showcase circuit that exists today, I think people would have understood it more and, and, and seen it for what it really was, which was taking the best high school player in the country. You're correct about, he wasn't on the showcase circuit. He was on that under that uh, international team, but he wasn't on the perfect game or the area codes and all that type of stuff. So you're correct. But if you were in the, at St. Paul and at Creighton High School, when he played Jonathan, there was a lot of juice in there. And I'm talking big time people in there watching him and they're sending in their best evaluators on a nightly basis or whenever he played. I don't think there's any question that, you know, as we got into April, all of a sudden, once the weather warmed up up there a little bit, there were people flocking in to see this guy and he wasn't, if we didn't take him, he wasn't going to get past maybe the second or third pick. So he was well known by the time April came around that people were flocking in to see him. And he was on everybody's cross check list. General managers were coming in and national cross checkers were coming in. You know, he didn't let any of that bother him. He just had Bobby Bowden in his living room about a month earlier going to Florida State. I don't know how much pressure he you could put on a kid if you'd had Bobby, Bobby Bowden and we go in there following up with Joel Leppel and Mark Wilson and maybe me. Uh, the the Maurer family had enough visitors. They didn't have to worry about pressure with that family. You're talking to Terry Ryan, the longtime GM of the Minnesota Twins, uh, talking to him about his involvement in the, the drafting and signing of now Hall of Famer Joe Maurer. Terry, it always amazes me with guys like this with Maurer and also another guy going in uh, with him and Todd Helton, who were just such incredible athletes across the board. And even sometimes within a sport, you know, we're talk we talked about Maurer being so good at football, basketball, baseball. He was also a pitcher and a, and a very successful one at the high school level. Did you ever see him pitch with, I, I read that he, 
had, had like a 92 mile an hour uh, fastball, a curve and a knuckleball. Um, th- did you ever go out specifically to watch him pitch or was that uh, was that something that you, you weren't even interested in seeing? I wasn't interested in seeing it, but I saw it about three times. You know, he came in and closed games out. And he was sitting right around 91, 92, and he had decent mechanics and a clean arm action. He would have been drafted as a pitcher if he never caught a game, but I don't think anybody wanted to see him pitch. We wanted to see him behind the plate. So you never want to have that happen when you're going in there to cross-check a player. You don't want to see him do that. You want to see him catch. But I did see him play football, and I did see him play basketball. He was certainly a tremendous gifted quarterback, but he was a Division I basketball player, too. I mean, I saw him play, and he carved up a team that was pretty good in the Twin Cities, and one of them was a Division I player. He shut him down, and he outplayed him. So he could he could have played in the Big Ten. Yeah, and I was looking back, Terry. You, know, you guys did take some heat for taking the cheaper guy. But at the time, you signed Joe Maurer for $5.15 million, which was the second highest bonus in draft history, not necessarily in terms of contracts, since prior to sharing got big league contracts. But when you signed him, it was the second highest bonus ever for a player who signed with the team that drafted him. You know, we had some loophole free agents and whatever. So it's, it wasn't like you guys went cheap on him. And, you know, the, the great thing about Joe – I mean, one of many great things about Joe because he's Hall of Famer is like, I mean, pretty much from day one, it was obvious how good he was. I think he came in and hit 400 in his pro debut in rookie ball and then really never looked back. I was wondering, again, I remember just talking to Mike about Joe so many times. I talked to him on draft night after you guys signed him. And Mike, as you know, Mike, great scout, never called attention to himself, didn't. You know, he was he was excited he got Joe Maurer, but he was it wasn't like he was bubbling over the top because that wasn't Mike's Mike's way. And. Mike made a comment that like his swing reminded him of someone, but he didn't want to tell me who it was to put pressure on Joe because I'd write about it. And so years later, I asked him, I was like, you know, when Joe was MVP and everything, who was the swing? Who did it remind you of? And he said, Ted Williams. And I was curious, did he ever make that comparison internally when you guys were going over players? Did, did he use the Ted Williams comp? Yes, he did. He's famous for those comps. You know, every time you get him into the room, you say, well, this guy reminds me of Ted Williams. This guy reminds me of Mays. I'm thinking, for gosh sakes, Mike, you talk about putting a ceiling on a kid. But, you know, when you make those power statements in the draft room and you've got 20 scouts in there, all of a sudden, that's how committed Mike was to Joe Maurer. I mean, there, there's no doubt that he had the one of the prettiest swings you've ever seen, but he never struck out in high school, just one time, of course, in four years. But, you know, he always had that famous walk to strikeout ratio where he always walked more than he struck out. I mean, the Mike, Mike would put things like that on players and it wasn't just the year that Mauro was eligible. He'd do that in every draft. And all of a sudden he, he catches your ear quickly and, I tried to temper that with Mike, but he was a he was a bright guy and he was studious and he had that vocabulary and he always had the photographic memory. It was tough to get anything by him, but sometimes you'd act Mike didn't have a pulse. He really he was he was just going about his business and he took control of that room and I was very impressed how he ran a scouting department. You know, it's rare, Terry, that a general manager and a scouting director get to work together for the amount of time that the the two of you 
we're able to, and I'm always fascinated by the dynamics in a draft room. Cause I think in a lot of other organizations, when, as you were, as you were saying, you know, the, the team was struggling, you weren't drawing fans. There was some fear of contraction, all, all of those things. I think in a lot of other draft rooms, the general manager would not necessarily swoop in, but would be the one to make the, the ultimate call. I'm just curious about the relationship with you and Mike, which had been cultivated prior to, to drafting Joe, obviously, but you know, how comfortable were you in in sort of allowing him to make the ultimate decision and how much of his ability to sort of command the room, as you just described, sort of figured into the equation of letting him make the ultimate decision. Well, I had a lot of confidence in him. As you know, he and I went back to 1983 or so when he was a bureau scout, and I was the area guy with the Mets in the Midwest. And I'd gotten to know him, and I kind of got a feel. He and I thought a lot of same about players, because as a bureau guy, you're required to report to 30 teams, and I talked to him quite a bit. So going into the 87 season, he we hired him, and then he got promoted in 91 or so, maybe even before that, as a scouting director. But I knew Mike, and I knew how he thought, and I think he knew how I thought. And he had me see Joe Maurer a lot. He wanted to make sure that I got on board with the same thought process he had, that this guy is probably going to be our guy. I think he decided on Joe Maurer maybe before he told me, Jonathan, you know, he he, I was going to give him the ability to make the choice, but I think he had Maurer picked well before the, the decision was made. I just had a lot of confidence in Mike. There are years that I did not see our first round draft choice just because I had enough confidence in our scouting department that they knew a lot more about these guys than I ever hoped to. And that's why I never made a selection. I always let the people that saw them had the depth. They saw him over about a two or three year period, knew the makeup, knew the injury history, knew the signability, knew what kind of family they had. I didn't have any of that knowledge, so I wouldn't make that pick. Hey, Terry, I wanted to ask you uh, about another draft. And, you know, the reason, big reason we're talking to you here today, obviously, we've been talking about Joe Maurer, another guy going in with him who we've mentioned, Todd Helton, who I believe that was your first year as the Twins GM, the year that he was drafted. And you guys picked uh, at 13. Helton ended up going eight to the Rockies. I was curious whether, you know, do you do you recall much about that particular draft? And were you guys in on Helton? Was there any thought that he might get to? I, I don't really know how that, that first round unfolded, but curious uh, your recollection there. Yeah, I do remember that because my good friend Bob Gebhardt's organization took him. And I remember Helton out of high school because he was he was a guy then, but he was tabbed to go to Tennessee as a quarterback. And I believe that uh, back in those days, and that is quite a long time ago now, but Helton was a guy. There's no doubt about that. I'm not even sure what year, who we took. You say we drafted when? Oh, yeah, you, you got uh, Redmond, who ended up having a, a good 10-year career in the big yeah, leagues at 13, yep. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, I remember Mike saying, we're going to take a left-handed pitcher out of Oklahoma. I said, well, that sounds good to me. We need pitching, and I love left-handers. But Helton was a tremendous guy out of Tennessee, and when they took him, that wasn't a surprise to anybody. Terry, you know, covering the draft and, and prospects as long as I have, 
One of the things that, that drives me a little bit nuts is when you have people say, oh, there's these hard and fast rules you got to live by. Like, you know, like during the Moneyball era, you know, don't take high school guys, which is, is just silly. And, and the age thing. And, and looking back at Mauer, he kind of broke two rules that people will throw out. Uh, one, you shouldn't ever take high school catcher in the first round, let alone 1-1. One, one. Like the, the history of high school catchers in the first round is terrible. And two, you know, taking a catcher who's, you know, Mauer was what, 6'5", you know, 6'4", 6'5". Like those guys don't stay behind the plate. I mean, obviously you took him, so you weren't, you guys weren't too worried about that. Did either of those considerations come up in the discussion of Joe Mauer? And does it drive you nuts when people try to act like there's a hard and fast rule to, to any of this? Those came up, Jim. I'll be honest. You know, I kept thinking about his size and the history. And then I thought about Sandy Alomar that caught 20 years and Carlton Fisk who caught 20 years and Bob Boone and some of those big catchers. Well, they, they seem to last. And I'm thinking that Maurer is one of the most athletic players that was in that draft. So he's got athlete and he takes care of himself and he's got the makeup and he's a great teammate. Why not take a catcher in the first round if, if they're that talented? And I understand the, the uh, stereotype of you better not do that. Well, Maurer's an exception to the rule in a lot of areas. And I, I just never... Never in any draft would I ever want to fall into that trap where, where you can't take this guy because of history. Well, there are people that can break that string, and obviously Joe was one of the guys that did. Terry, before we let you go, um, you know, I know you, obviously when you pick 1-1, one, one, you want to get a, a guy who's going to help in, in the big leagues and, and for a long time. Now is your chance to tell the world that you knew when you saw him all those times in high school that he, he was going to go on to be a hall of famer. So go ahead. It took me a while to think that Jonathan, it took me until he got his first year in the big leagues. I started thinking, man, this guy, he's only 21 and he's already proven in Elizabeth and he hit 400. Then an a ball, he just went in and, and that didn't challenge him much. And, you know, people thought we held him back. And I kept thinking, well, geez, let's give the guy a little opportunity at double A, and he didn't have any trouble there. That gave us the ability to trade Pruszynski. And then when we promoted Joe, he got hurt quick. That that kind of stung, but he bounced back. But when he got into the major leagues and started showing that he can handle major league pitching at 21, you start to think about his future and hopefully that we can retain him and all that stuff, which we did. But it didn't take long for some people to start talking about a Hall of Fame with him the way he could hit. Barry, we could we could talk to you for hours, uh, but we won't. We'll let you go. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, guys. It was fun. All right. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to look back at uh, talk a little bit more about Todd Helton and Adrian Beltre as prospects, discuss some recent trades that have involved prospects, and answer a question from the mailbag. That's all coming up next on the MLB Pipeline Podcast. Welcome back to the MLB Pipeline Podcast. Jason Ratliff, Jim Callis, Jonathan Mayo, thanks very much to Harry Ryan for joining us. Talked a lot about Joe Maurer there, mentioned Todd Helton a bit, and Adrian Beltre, the other two going in uh, to the Hall of Fame with Joe. Jim, want to have you talk about these guys a little bit uh, as they were 
when there were prospects. Helton, we covered, you know, fantastic football player. And uh, I know you were. Uh, fantastic pitcher, too. Fantastic yeah, I know. And, too, you know, people forget. And, and also, like, we, everybody knows. Well, I don't know if everybody knows, but people know he was a great quarterback. I also saw that he had 23 interceptions as a safety in high school. It's like these guys just can't be good at it. There aren't enough things for them to be good at. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, I don't know if he's, I'd have to look this up, but at one point he held the record for consecutive, and the records are sketchy on this because when you get kind of back before the eighties, teams don't have great records. So maybe back in the day when there was a lot less scoring, somebody had more, but Helton, I think he still holds the accredited record for consecutive scoreless innings by a division one pitcher with 47. I mean, he was, you know, it, it's funny. You know, he was, I think I can't remember if Heath Shuler was a quarterback. So their quarterback got hurt. So Todd Helton actually played in front of Peyton Manning, who was a true freshman before I think Helton got dinged up and then Manning took over. But the other thing people forget is like Helton's career arc could have been a lot different. He was a second round pick in 1992. And at that point, it, it wasn't like in the eighties and before where you saw a lot of high picks go unsigned and the Potters offered him, I went back and I was looking at stories we wrote about him at the time. He was our, our college player of the year at Baseball America in 1995. He turned down $450,000, which was a, you know big money um, from the Padres because he, you know he was from Knoxville. So, I mean, he was recruited to Tennessee. Alabama was also after him to be their quarterback. But he said he knew kind of early on after he got drafted, they didn't do as much work on signability, but that he knew pretty quick he was going to stay and play at Tennessee. Um, so he, he wasn't really close to signing with the pod, but he could have been a second round pick and, and gotten big money out of high school. Who knows how his career would unfold. But the, the one biggest memory I have of Todd. So he was in Omaha in 1995 and I was covering the college world series for baseball. Did you America. go to the driver that year? And again, I'm sure I did. I'm sure I did. Cause I, I first went to not, the drover. No, no, sorry. I didn't mean I to do that. Not, Please keep no, talking no, no, about no, Todd Helton. You, you got me salvaged. I haven't been to the drover since like 2018 now. Cause it burned down or had a fire. And then I haven't been back in a while. Anyway, I did go to the drover. We, we, I took um, Mike Kelly, who was our player of the year in 1990. It was the first time I went to the drover on the recommendation of legendary coach Jim Brock, as I get sidetracked here, but Todd Helton was our player of the year. And I did not have to take Todd Helton to the drover because his team was there. So we didn't have to fly him out as our player of the year, but we did, we did this big press conference. And then <laughs> this is like the technology at the time. It was, this was a big thing. The draft was not public. MLB at that point was still, they'd released the first round in order, but nothing else. And we would, but we got permission for a few years to pipe in the first round of the draft. It would always be the first day was usually right after our press conference ended. We would, we'd structure it. So you, you, you pump in the first round of the draft and that's how you would find out who got drafted. And it, at the time, this is pre-internet. This seemed pretty fancy, but I'll never forget, you know, Todd Helton was supposed to be for weeks. Everybody's like, the A's are taking him at five. It's a done deal. The A's are going to take him at five. And at the last second, the A's wanted a guy who could contribute immediately to their pitching staff in the big league. So they took this Cuban pitcher. I remember Preto. that. Yep. And, and, and he got up there pretty quick. He didn't make much of an impact. Helton got picked by the Rockies at, at eight. And it was already apparent at that point that, you know, hey, Colorado is a really good place to hit. And, and Oakland was a, you know, probably the worst park in the big leagues to hit. And I will never forget the grin on Todd Helton's face when he found out he was going to be hitting in Colorado and not <laughs> Oakland. Like he was, 
And Todd, like, I'm not claiming we're close, but I mean, just you guys have seen him over the years. He's not a real demonstrative guy. He's not going to be, you know, pumping fists too often, but he was, he was pretty jacked up that he was going to be a Rocky. Um, so anyway, that, that's, that's my, my Todd Helton reminiscence. And I will, I will tell him myself that I actually voted against him. We have very small staff baseball America. I, I wanted Mark Kotze to be our player of the year in 1995. He was a two-way star also. And they won the national. You've gone on to use Mark Kotze as a comp for countless players since. Favorite college player I ever covered was so, Mark uh, you know, One thing that sort of popped to mind you know, with Helton and then even with Joe Maurer, because you know, one of the things, especially after talking to Terry and Jim, I'm glad you brought up the fact that they didn't really go cheap on Joe Maurer. He got paid because he was a multi-sport guy. But back then, you could spread out your bonus for a multi-sport guy to sign him away from that other sport over five five years. years. I I wonder, I mean, this kind of a hypothetical, right? But like, would anyone, you know, would the twins have had difficulty signing Joe Mara with the Rockies, you know, had trouble or, or, you know, the offer made to Helton out of high school, would that have been different now uh, with more limitations in, in terms of, being able to do that kind of thing with multi-sport guys. Well, I mean, at least with Joe, I think they still would have taken Joe and signed him because they would have had a pretty big chunk if, if, under the current system with the number one pick. That's and he true. wasn't, they weren't worried about him like defecting. And then it's funny, you know, Helen's bonus, even though he was picked eighth was the lowest among the first 11 picks. Like he didn't, I don't think they too sported Todd, um, but his bonus was a little bit huh. below slot okay. as it were. Uh, there weren't officially slots, but it was below what other guys got in, in 1995. But it's, it's interesting. And, and it's interesting because I it's funny, like my memory is not what it used to be. But uh, I always thought like that the Padres kind of had screwed up negotiations with Todd Helton out of high school. And I think there was some of that. I think there was one guy in particular whose name I'm not going to mention that the Helton family didn't particularly care for in the Padres front office. But um, I was looking back at the story I wrote when he was our player of the year. And he was more gracious and just said, I knew I wanted to stay home. And, you know, he, he didn't feel pressure from local people to stay in Knoxville, but he wanted to play, stay in Knoxville and play both ways and play two sports. All right. And then Adrian Beltre, the third of the trio, headed to the Hall of Fame in this year's class. Guy who predated our rankings on MLB.com by uh, several years. But uh, Jim, looking back, he was uh, number 30 on Baseball America's 1997 list and then jumped up to number three on their uh, 1998 preseason list after uh, a very impressive year in Vero Beach. I just missed Adrian Beltre. He was with the San Bernardino Stampede in 1996. Uh, I just missed him by a couple of years there. Turned out the best player I ever saw play for the Stampede was Chen Feng Chen. Remember him? Taiwanese yep. guy. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, he might have been the. He had a big. He year did. I think Cal League too, didn't he? I think that was the peak of his prospect. Yeah, hours. I think he might have might have been a 30, 30 guy, if I'm not mistaken. He was. Yeah. Was he league MVP? Like who? Like who knew we were going down all these rabbit holes today? This is uh, great yeah, stuff. But I would have rather would have rather seen Adrian Beltre. Did you Did you see him in the minors? I didn't because we, we did not have a big travel budget, and Adrian was for the most part on the West Coast. Outside of Vero Beach, I, I take it back. I guess he played in Savannah, but no, I did not go down to the Sally League to see him. 
and I certainly did not venture to San Bernardino to see him. But you know what's amazing is he got to the big leagues very fast, so quickly, and he broke into he broke into pro ball. I think this is right. Did his career? Did, I think he started his career in a ball, even though we found out later that he, like, he had lied about his age when he signed. But in reverse, like, there was a lot of age shenanigans going on back then. But it usually was, you know, nineteen-year-old guy purporting to be sixteen. And he, I think, went the other way. He, I think he was 15 when he signed, and, and they, the Dodgers fudged his age and said he was 16, and that's how they got him to sign. But, like, so he, I think he did play a little bit in, he must have played in rookie ball, because I can't imagine they put a 15-year-old. But, like, at age 17, he split the year between low A and high A and hit 26 home runs. So it was pretty evident pretty quickly that he was special. And I was going back and looking at some of the old scouting reports we had on, on Beltre and it like whoever wrote our Dodgers reports back then liked comparing his instincts and physique to Raul Mondesi. Cause we, they used that two years in a row, but it was basically this guy does everything great except run. And you know, he, it, you know, it, it was, you know, pretty much everything else was plus or better than plus. And you know, it, it's interesting how his career evolved because you know, he was good, not great with the Dodgers, but he was super young. And they had the big 48 home run season that got him the free agent contract in Seattle, which was kind of a hitter's graveyard. And so his numbers there were good, but not great. And I don't think people really, he, he seems like he's the, the rare exception where I think people started to realize how great he was when he was in his thirties, as opposed to when he was in the 20, in his 20s. It was kind of year after year of very good numbers. You know, he didn't he didn't do what he did within that that walk year with the Dodgers again. Um, but then he had all those years with the Rangers where he just kept. I mean, it's unbelievable. Thirty two homers and one hundred four runs batting with a three hundred average. At thirty seven, even his last year, he was he was still pretty productive. I mean, so it's uh, a combination of just being re- very, very good for a really long time um, after getting up getting up to the big leagues, as you pointed out, so, so quickly, uh, you know, going straight to full season ball to start, skipping over triple a pretty amazing. Let's shift gears. And we want to talk about a couple of trades that have gone down over the past week or so that involve top 100 prospects. Uh, let's start off with the big Corbin Burns deal. Uh, Burns goes from Milwaukee to Baltimore in exchange for top 100 prospect, Joey Ortiz, who's number 63 on the list another former top 100 prospect in DL Hall and the competitive balance round a pick, which is currently number 34. What'd you guys think of this deal? Jim's going to predict who that pick is going to be, by the way, so we can plug that in. Um, Yeah. I'm going to mock out just the competitive balance. A, Um, you know, I think at first I thought, wow, like that's not a lot to give up for Corbin Burns and it's only one year of Corbin Burns, but I think, you know, what the Orioles are starting to do are, are, is to, you know, trade from that pool of talent at the, at the highest levels of their system and in the big leagues, uh, because they can't play everybody. Um, so I, I think, you know, 
for the Brewers that are getting two guys in Ortiz and Hall who are likely going to help them this year. Um, you know, one of the curious things about, I think, for the Brewers to trade Corbin Burns is, you know, their hopes of competing in the NL Central. I mean, Jim, I have to think that the Brewers think D.L. Hall can start and we'll get a chance to plug into that rotation uh, and we'll see what happens there. I think we both are on the he should be a reliever page. You know, say Ortiz needed needed a place to play and it wasn't going to happen in Baltimore. And he could play shortstop every day. You know, he could slide over and play third, which I think is the most likely scenario there. He can play second, all plus defenders, and he's a better hitter than I think a lot of people thought he might be. Um, so he has a chance to be a good everyday infielder, regardless of where he plays. So uh, I think some of it's going to hinge on what kind of impact and how DL Hall impacts that pitching staff at the big league level. Yeah, and I, and I think I think you hit what I thought about the trade too, Jonathan. Like my initial reaction was like, oh, like I, I think they actually it's not a bad haul for a guy who was almost certainly going to leave in a year, so they had to get something for him now, or they were essentially going to get something like the 34th overall pick for him if he left as a free agent that, you know, and no players. So I think this was a case of, Hey, you know, we got to make a move. You maybe Joey Ortiz lets you trade Willie Adamas. They do have a hole at third base that somebody could fill. I'm with you. I think DL Hall's more of a reliever. Um, they may try him as a starter and look, I mean, relievers, I mean, starters pitch less. So relievers are more valuable than ever. Um, I, I think, and then I've seen about it. I think also part of the reason that, that the reaction was like, oh, they didn't get a ton for him was because if you, for that trade, that that's a no brainer for the Orioles. Like we've been saying all yes. along, they got to go get some pitching. They got to go get some pitching and they give up Jory Ortiz, who, like you said, is blocked and DL Hall, who, who's probably a reliever and the 34th overall pick, which if they don't, let's say they don't keep Corbin Burns, which with new ownership, maybe they will. But if Corbin Burns leaves as a free agent, they're going to get a comparable pick back in next year's draft anyway. When, when he leaves as a free agent. So I, I don't think the Brewers, and I know you weren't saying this, I don't think the Brewers did poorly. I just think the Orioles, my initial reaction was, oh man, if I'm the Orioles, I'm making that trade like every day. It's like, as soon as that gets proposed, I'm like, yes. I think they, they were good like, trading partners. You know, I don't, you know, I, I just yeah. try to stay away from like, oh, that's going to be a good trade for both teams. It might be, but I think just on paper right now, they were good partners because they each had things that each other needed and wanted and could provide. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, best number 34 overall pick ever. Mark Gupasa. Uh, I'm sorry, and I forgot. I, I forgot to take uh, – they're going to take – with the number 34 pick oh, that's right. in 2024, the Brewers are going to take Kevin Bazell, the Texas Tech catcher. I probably butchered <laughs> his name here. Sorry, Kevin. But, like, I think he's an underrated hitter. Like, I, I'm telling you. So, like, I, I want full credit. Like, if, if, if that's who they take – Lock. Um, that that that's who I think they could be. Athletic catcher right. who can really hit. Uh, okay, and then another trade involving a top one hundred prospect, Jorge Polanco, going from Minnesota to Seattle uh, for a couple of right-handers, Anthony Desclafani, Justin Topa, and then guys we're interested in the prospects, Gabriel Gonzalez, uh, number seventy nine on the top one hundred, and right-hander Darren Bowen, a thirteenth rounder in the twenty twenty two draft. How about this one? That, I mean, it's a lot of names, right? You know, but looking at the prospects, I, this is going to hinge on what kind of player Gabriel Gonzalez ends up being when all is said and done. I mean, we have him in our top 100. He has unbelievable back-to-ball skills 
really low strikeout rates. He draws walks. Uh, does not hit the ball as hard as you would want. He did hit 18 homers last year, uh, but I think there was some hope that the power uh, and the impact would have taken more of a step forward last year. He'll only be 20 for all of this year, and I, I think it's going to depend on if if that if the sort of run production profile takes a step forward. He's a corner outfielder only. He does have a ridiculously strong arm, so he could be that prototypical run-producing right fielder um, type of player. He's got to stay on top of his conditioning, which is also going to have an impact on, on what kind of player he is. So I think there are some question marks as to which way his arrow is pointing. You know, and if the Twins can kind of unlock that, then this could end up being a very good trade for them. And then Darren Bowen seemed kind of interesting too, Jonathan. Like he seemed like he was like a deep sleeper. Would you want it putting him at number 27 on the – Yeah, somewhere around that. And he would have made it onto the you – know, we're right in that weird limbo stage of work. We're all working on our 2024 lists. And he would have – he was not on the – Mariners top 30 he would have been uh had he still been in the organization when we when we did the new you know so, somewhere in the 20s in the um you know in in in, in the Mariners list had he stuck around so yeah he yeah. there's some yeah, interesting, interesting traits yeah. like athletic four pitch guy and with some interesting metrics and it, it's weird like Jonathan this is like it's like glass half full glass half empty this time of year it's like on one hand and I got hit, you know, by a couple of trades with the with the White Sox that weren't as significant. No top one hundred guys involved. When the trades happen, you're like, ugh, like I do not need to be updating last year's list while I'm trying to work on on several this year's lists. But then the flip side of it is, but I have all this information, so it's very easy to have That's a replacement. True. Or like I don't have to ask anybody about Darren Bowen because I know who he is now because I was working on the Mariners. So it's like a weird dichotomy where I hate trades right now, but at least they're a little easier to deal with than usual because we have so much information we're amassing for the new list. That's fair. Since we're talking about the process, the rank, the process of ranking prospects, let's answer this question from the mailbag. That's 70 seg- 70 segue. Look at Jason Ratliff. Thank, Thank you. And, and he's not even a pro. This isn't even his, <laughs> like, he's like a, a multi, multi-talented play, two-way player. Definitely he's a Swiss like, Army knife. Like, he's, he's like, 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 manager editor like this is well down the like the list on his resume and it's still look at that 70 segue i'm giving a 70 to that segue man anyway I, sorry i interrupted it an 80 at some some point someday uh doug sal's underscore doug on twitter slash x says several prospect outlets release top 100 lists at similar times with reports from industry sources are there a few front office people with calendars that are blocked off with Talk to Athletic, comma Pipeline, comma ESPN for a month, or do you all tend to have different contacts? We actually, uh, all of the prospect writers have a big Calendly, and we ask them, uh, all the the front office officials, to to fill it out, and we just take slots. I'm kidding. <laughs> Listen, I think, you know, Jim and I discovered this a long time ago, uh, probably even before you came over to work with us, that we talk to a lot of the same people for for draft stuff so i think we do all talk to a lot of the same people you know for for the top 100 lists it's a lot of pro scouting directors for top 30 lists it's a lot of the farm directors so it's a lot of the same people so i think it 
what can differentiate is what you do with the information that you're that you're given, how many other people you talk to, things of that nature. But there there are a lot of uh, of similarities. And I think I know for me and Jim, I think you've said as much the same. We we try to be cognizant of of the time commitment we ask from from you know from all these front office folks uh, for information. Indeed, I mean, in, in Jonathan, I mean, when we're getting feedback on whether it's the top one hundred prospects list or the top one hundred or one hundred and fifty draft list, or even I think some of the top thirty lists where we we'll seek out some pro scouting directors, you and I, and and when Sam's doing lists. I think we coordinate so we're not like all three of us asking the same pro scouting director to evaluate, you know, 30 top 30 lists. Like we, we try to be kind of that. I, I will say the one thing that's a little different with the top 100 is we're not, um, you're not really doing it from scratch. Like so much of the information that goes into the formulation of the top 100 is information we've gotten over the course of the year from the, the many, many times over the previous 12 months where we've been doing various lists or seeing guys for the draft or seeing guys, you know, play in the fall league or whatever. So the top 100 itself is not nearly as intensive as say doing, you know, like we were just saying the top 30 twins list or top 30 Mariners list. Like that's <laughs> the, the top 100. We kind of know the players. You're, you're like, I don't think very rarely is it like, Oh, we know we didn't know much about this guy. Right. We didn't realize this guy was as good. So you're more like the nice thing is, it, it's not, I don't feel like we ask as much time from people and we get a lot of responses, but it's something they can either do with a quick phone call or a lot of people will just email, like take a yep. look at the list and then, you know, send back a bunch of thoughts. So it's not like you're sitting there like I will with the top 30 and be like, okay, Hey, these three lefties, how do you stack them up? How do you differentiate? You know, I, we're not sitting there going, okay, Jackson holiday or Jackson Churia, where do you put Paul Skeens? What about all these shortstops? So, and I think I, without knowing exactly what the athletic or ESPN or, or, you know, other outlets exactly do. It's the same thing. Like if you're covering prospects previously to this, you're not starting from scratch. So, so I, I think we, we hopefully are not wearing out all the front office people in baseball who are getting ready for spring training. All right, Doug, thank you very much for that question. And thanks to Terry Ryan for joining us on this episode of the pipeline podcast. That's going to do it. Uh, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next week.